Today is Friday, April 15th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedo Foy in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour. The Pentagon monitors Russian nuclear forces after threats to deploy hypersonic missiles near Finland and Sweden. He told me that the Pentagon obviously takes any potential nuclear threat very, very seriously, but he noted that Russia has ramped up its rhetoric, calling it bellicose. ICC Chief Prosecutor Karim Khan visits mass graves in Bushar, Ukraine. Every individual, particularly civilians, uh, they have certain rights. We must speak for them and we must insist that we get to the truth of what's taken place and then judges will decide uh, if there's responsibility. And the man charged in this week's Brooklyn subway attack has been ordered held without bail. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. The Pentagon is keeping a wary eye on the movement of Russia's nuclear forces following threats by one of Russian President Vladimir Putin's closest allies Thursday. Dmitry Medvedev, deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, said that the Kremlin would deploy nuclear weapons and hypersonic missiles if Sweden and Finland join NATO. He also said should both nations join the U.S.-led military alliance, Moscow would have to strengthen its naval, land and air forces in the Baltic Sea. For more, I spoke with VOA's Pentagon correspondent, Carla Bob. They are saying that they have concern over this at the Pentagon. I just asked Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby about it, and he told me that the Pentagon and the United States obviously takes any potential nuclear threat very, very seriously. But he noted that Russia has ramped up its rhetoric, calling it bellicose past when, when it comes to nuclear weapons. So with respect to rhetoric in the past or this new rhetoric that we're hearing, he says that the Pentagon is watching this very closely. Another reporter asked if there was any update to whether or not the Pentagon had seen Russia actually move any of its nuclear weapons towards that area. And he said that he did not have an update on that. Even if this is just a bellicose, the mere threat of it, is that not enough to deter and scare other nations who want to join NATO, just like he's doing at Ukraine? It's definitely concerning to the United States, as Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said, because the entire premise uh, that NATO holds in this entire Russia-Ukraine conflict is that any country is sovereign and they should be able to make sovereign decisions for themselves. And Russia is trying to bully other countries into doing exactly what they want. Now, Russia will say that should Finland and Sweden join NATO, that that would increase their border with NATO countries. It would make an even longer border. And so that's what is concerning to them. But the problem with their concerns is that all of this consideration to join NATO has picked up post Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Medvedev did claim today that Russia's move was not to blame for this. But the timing is quite interesting. I think the timing speaks for itself here. Earlier during the Ukraine fighting, Russia threatened nuclear weapons. At that point in time, the Pentagon came out to reassure Americans that U.S. government and the administration are on top of it and they have contingency plan. Does that still stand? Oh, yes. So the United States definitely has multiple contingency plans when it comes to their nuclear arsenal, and they do not want to talk about it. So we're not going to get a lot of details on that. What they decided in the past is they were very straightforward. The United States officials were very straightforward in saying that they were not deploying any nuclear weapons to Ukraine, and they were not putting U.S. military boots on the ground in Ukraine. So they wanted to try to prohibit and prevent Russia from acting out. They were trying to be as transparent as possible, they say. 
they haven't given the specifics with Sweden and Finland. There's a different scenario here because Russia, it doesn't have forces in Sweden and Finland. Ukraine had Russian forces in Crimea. They illegally annexed Crimea in 2014. They have forces in eastern Ukraine. And so there was a huge chance that there could be a conflict should U.S. put troops on the ground there. It's not the same scenario here. So it's unclear. I know that the United States would not go into Finland or Sweden without Finland or Sweden asking them to go. But it's unclear whether or not the U.S. might try to respond to Finland or Sweden should ask because there are not Russian troops there at this point. That's VOA's Pentagon correspondent Carla Bob speaking with me from Washington, D.C. The chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Karin Kem, visited the mass graves in Busha, Ukraine, on Wednesday, telling reporters afterward, quote, Ukraine is a crime scene, unquote. The United States says it will help document these crimes, as VOA's senior diplomatic correspondent, Cindy Sane, reports. War crimes prosecutors visited the town of Bucha, near Ukraine's capital Wednesday, promising to follow the evidence as forensic experts began their work. Karim Khan is the chief prosecutor for the International Criminal Court. Every individual, particularly civilians, uh, they have certain rights. We must speak for them and we must insist that we get to the truth of what's taking place and then judges will decide uh, if there's responsibility. The ICC, which is based in The Hague, Netherlands, has begun investigating alleged Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Neither Russia nor the U.S. is a member of the world body. The top U.S. diplomat for Ukraine said the world now knows that Russian President Vladimir Putin was lying when he claimed atrocities in cities and towns across Ukraine were faked or staged. Kristina Kivien is the U.S. charged the affairs in Ukraine. The world knows that he's responsible for the train station uh, blast in Kramatorsk. He's responsible for the atrocities committed in Bucha. He's responsible for the devastation in Mariupol. Uh, he's responsible for the devastation in Kharkiv. And there's no one else that he can point the finger to. And the world knows that. At the State Department briefing Wednesday, spokesperson Ned Price was repeatedly asked why the U.S. was not pursuing its own war crimes investigation in Ukraine and if President Joe Biden was premature in using the word genocide. We are engaged in a process at this very moment uh, to work with partners around the world, but in the first instance, our Ukrainian partners, uh, to help them collect, to preserve to document and to share evidence of atrocities, potential war crimes, and yes, if that threshold, that legal threshold is reached, uh, genocide. We are working uh, very closely with the office of the Ukrainian prosecutor general who has set up uh, a team uh, under her purview to um, initiate uh, a criminal case with an eye towards potential prosecution. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has called for Putin to be brought before an international tribunal. All the world's leading states have already condemned Russia's attack on Kramastorsk. 
We expect a firm global response to this war crime. Like the massacres in Bucha, like many other Russian war crimes, the missile strike on Kramastorsk must be one of the charges at the tribunal, which is bound to happen. Experts tell VOA that as long as Russian soldiers remain in Russia, access to them is almost impossible. But they said holding war crimes trials to shame and blame perpetrators can still make sense. Alexander Downs is an associate professor of political science at the George Washington University. Now, holding war crimes trials, even in absentia, can have a deterrent effect uh, on saying, you know, the the lower ranks might say, hey, I don't want to make myself vulnerable uh, to a potential war crimes prosecution. And basically that means you're stuck in Russia for life, because if you leave the country, you can be prosecuted anywhere under what's called universal jurisdiction. Uh, and that applies to Vladimir Putin as well. On Tuesday, Putin said the reported war crimes in Bucha were fabricated without offering any evidence and contradicting evidence collected from mass graves and numerous eyewitness reports. Cindy Sane, VOA News. A UN watchdog committee is calling for an end to what it says is a climate of almost absolute impunity in Mexico, which is behind the country's epidemic of enforced disappearances. The UN Committee of Enforced Disappearances has published the results of a fact-finding mission to Mexico late last year, as Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. During the committee's visit to Mexico last November, 112 newly disappeared victims were added to the more than 95,000 people officially registered as missing. The UN Committee on Enforced Disappearances holds public officials and organized crime responsible for the soaring numbers of disappearances in Mexico. That is based on evidence gathered by the committee during its 11-day visit from hundreds of officials, victims, and civil society organizations across the country. Committee Secretary Alban Profet Palasco says males between the ages of 15 and 40 are the main victims. But she says there's been a notable increase in disappearances in boys and girls from age 12, as well as of adolescents and women, some for purposes of trafficking and sexual exploitation. Prophet Palasco also noted with concern the disappearances of human rights activists and journalists. The committee is concerned about the situation of human rights defenders, some of whom have been disappeared because of the participation in searches and fighting against disappearances. It is also concerned at the disappearances of more than 30 journalists between 2003 and 2021. None of them have been located. The report notes an average of 8,000 new cases of enforced disappearances in Mexico have occurred in each year of the past five years. During the visit, Profet Palasco says the committee heard allegations of disappearances that have happened in prisons and migration centers. She says the delegation also received allegations that migrants were being illegally detained and held for ransom, sometimes with the support of public servants. Impunity in Mexico is a structural feature that favors the pre-production and cover-up of enforced appearances and creates threats and anxiety to the victims. The committee called for immediate actions to end absolute impunity and a national policy to prevent this human tragedy. In response to the report, 
Mexico's Interior Ministry issued a statement expressing its appreciation of the work of the UN Committee. It added that it was committed to implementing the committee's recommendations in good faith. Mexico has four months in which to submit its observations to the committee. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Every South Korean may soon get a year, quote, younger, unquote. That is because South Korea's next president has promised to eliminate the country's unique system of calculating age. VOA's Bill Gallo explains from Seoul. South Korea is the world's only country where the question, how old are you, is actually pretty complicated. There are three possible ways to answer. If you ask someone on the street, they will almost certainly use the traditional way. In that system, all babies are born at age one. They get a year older every January 1st. But there's another method that determines your grade at school. In that system, babies are born at age zero and gain a year every time the calendar turns. And finally, there is the international method used on all official documents. It's quite common for South Koreans to have three different ages at the same time, which may sound like a fun quirk. But when you need to get something done, like vote or get a coronavirus vaccination, you have to figure out which age applies. Most South Koreans hate it. Lee Yun Chul, who runs a cafe, says she wasn't sure whether she could apply for certain youth-based government assistance programs, such as small business support. She says according to international age, she was considered a youth, but according to traditional age, she was too old. Most recently, many South Koreans became frustrated after health officials used inconsistent age standards for coronavirus vaccinations. As a result, many were required to show proof of vaccination, even though they were not eligible to get vaccines. Those born later in the year often feel especially disadvantaged, particularly as children, since they're placed in classes with much older, more advanced students, but are seen as the same age. E says her son is seen as a slow learner at school. But she says he's not actually slow. He was just born in October, much later than other kids in his year age group. It can add even more pressure to South Korea's highly competitive and stress-filled academic environment. It also creates awkward social situations in a society where age determines how people interact. The system's origins are unclear. One theory says the system is meant to recognize the life of a fetus, Others say it stems from ancient numerical systems that had no concept of zero. Tradition or not, the country's president-elect, Yoon Suk-yeol, made it a major campaign pledge to use only the international system. Though past attempts have failed, Yoon's proposal may succeed, since it has support among both major political parties and the public. A recent poll showed 71% of South Koreans support abolishing the system. Han Se-ak, a professor at South Korea's Dong-a University, says Korean age is not wrong. It's just a Confucian cultural custom. But, he says, it needs to be changed to eliminate inconsistencies and make government processes clearer. If the change happens, it means all South Koreans will knock at least one year off their age. Bill Gallo, VOA News, Seoul, South Korea. In other news, the man charged in this week's Brooklyn subway attack has been ordered held without bail, with prosecutors saying he terrified, quote, the entire city, unquote. Frank James appeared in federal court Thursday, a day after his arrest in an attack that left 10 people shot. 
Authorities say the 62-year-old unleashed smoke bombs and dozens of bullets. His lawyer is cautioning against, quote, a rush to judgment, unquote. She asked for him to receive, quote, psychiatric attention, unquote, in jail. He's charged with a federal terrorism offense that applies to attacks on mass transit systems. Authorities say there is currently no evidence linking him to terror organizations and are still trying to derive a motive. For more of this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. The World Health Organization says the COVID-19 pandemic is not over and a coordinated international response is needed to stop it from continuing to spread around the world. Again, Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Latest reports put the global number of COVID-19 cases at 502 million, including 6.19 million deaths. The World Health Organization says that is the lowest number of COVID-19 deaths recorded since the early days of the pandemic more than two years ago. However, the good news is tempered by reports of serious spikes in cases and increased hospitalizations in some countries. The WHO acknowledges growing fatigue among communities and the desire to resume a more normal life. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus warns this is no time for people to let down their guard. He notes the COVID-19 Emergency Committee unanimously agreed this week that the pandemic remains a public health emergency of international concern. WHO scientists continue to work with thousands of experts around the world to track and monitor the SARS-CoV-2 virus. This virus has over time become more transmissible and it remains deadly, especially for the unprotected and unvaccinated that don't have access to health care and antivirals. Tedros says it has become more difficult to monitor the trajectory of the coronavirus because testing has dropped significantly. He adds testing and contact tracing helps stop the spread of the virus and says it will be harder to save lives without those tools. Diagnosing at-risk patients early enough for new antivirals to be effective is essential and should be available to everyone everywhere. In addition... Higher testing and sequencing rates will be vital for tracing existing and identifying new variants as they emerge. Tedro says the best protection against COVID-19 is to get vaccinated and boosted when recommended. He also urges continued mask wearing, especially in crowded indoor spaces. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. A new report by the United Nations says climate change will accelerate at an unprecedented pace if governments don't act soon. For many people, such news can spur conflicting emotions, hopelessness that is all too late, a sense of urgency to do something. Viewers Julie Tabor spoke with a few young people about their concerns for the fate of the planet. These young students are picking up litter and removing garlic mustard in a wooded park in Washington, D.C., Removing invasive species helps native plants flourish. And the students say they feel like they're contributing in a small way to a healthier planet. High school student Grayson Bullard. I want other people, um, even like generations from now, to be able to have like the same experiences I've gotten to have in Rock Creek. A recent report by a United Nations panel 
predicts that the planet is heading toward environmental catastrophe if governments don't take immediate drastic action to curtail climate change. The bracing headlines about Earth's future are contributing to what some experts call eco-anxiety, or climate change distress, found especially among the young. Some feel there is little they can do. Others feel spurred to action. High school student Amelia Lawler. I think I, like a lot of people in my generation, we're really afraid right now, and um, it's really easy to feel helpless. But Amelia counters that helpless feeling by volunteering regularly at the park. I chose to do this because it felt like something that I could do that was tangible, that was a way of actually helping the environment, of helping my community. Nearly half of young people between the ages of 16 and 25 say anxiety about climate change negatively affects their daily lives according to a recent global survey in the medical journal, The Lancet. Khalil Kettering is Global Projects Director at the Nature Conservancy. We're seeing the impacts of drought, the impacts of extreme heat in cities, the impacts on agriculture and food shortages. But what I'm finding is that more and more people, especially young people, have the temerity to say there's solutions we know that we can do to reduce some of the impacts of climate change and to help us adapt. And we can't do nothing. A common message by the experts is to take small actions in your own life to reduce your carbon footprint. Julie Tabo, VOA News, Washington. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and a panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including the war in Ukraine and sanctions on Russia are causing even more stress in an already strained global supply chain brought on by the pandemic. We'll discuss what this means for consumers and their wallets around the world. Join us for Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at vonews.com until next time i am chinebrofo in washington wishing you a wonderful weekend next an editorial reflecting the views of the united states government The United States is concerned over growing tensions in South Sudan, including recent clashes between the South Sudan People's Defense Forces and the Sudan People's Liberation Army Movement in Opposition, or SPLMIO, in Upper Nile State. Former rivals President Salva Kiir and his vice president, Rik Makar, have struggled to enforce a peace agreement signed in 2018 to end a five-year civil war. State Department spokesperson Ned Price called on both sides to observe fully their obligations under the existing peace agreement. The SPLMIO announced its withdrawal from a body overseeing the peace process over unprovoked attacks on its bases by its peace partner. Spokesperson Price called on the SPLMIO to immediately reverse this decision. At the same time, he said, ceasefire monitoring bodies must investigate the recent violence and hold perpetrators responsible. 
The United States calls on President Kiir and First Vice President Makar to de-escalate tensions, resume implementation of key long-delayed provisions of the revitalized peace agreement, including taking the necessary steps to establish an inclusive process to draft a new constitution, to establish necessary electoral legislation and mechanisms, and to respect the freedoms of expression, association, and peaceful assembly. Regional states and institutions, namely the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, need to take swift action to lower tensions and put the peace process back on track. All sides bear responsibility for the deteriorating situation, declared spokesperson Price. Neither President Kiir nor First Vice President Makar have made good faith efforts to implement the provisions of the revitalized peace agreement, and both have resisted serious attempts to move South Sudan towards the peace, security, and prosperity the South Sudanese people continue to desire. The United States calls on all members of the revitalized transitional government of national unity to take the actions necessary to be seen as credible in the eyes of the South Sudanese people, starting with full adherence to and implementation of the 2018 peace agreement. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. This is the voice of America, Washington, bye.